From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work, our ongoing conversation about how we can get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Senior Director of Wharton People Analytics, here for today's show with human rights pioneer Malika Dutt. Malika embodies the highest ideals of women at work, and I don't say that lightly. With immense compassion and determination, Malika has leveraged her fierce intelligence, innate creativity, and really unique approach to leadership to serve as a powerful force globally in fighting the pandemic of violence against girls and women. We're going to talk with her today about her journey as an activist and social entrepreneur, the ongoing challenge of protecting women and girls from sexual abuse and domestic violence, both abroad and right here at home. And hopefully we'll also have some time to discover what she's learned along the way about establishing a legacy, the power of interconnectedness, and the importance of self-care. Our phones are open at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. And we'd love for you to join in the conversation. You can reach us. That's 1-844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or you can write to us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. We really would love to hear from you. Um, So you should know. I had the great honor of talking to Malika a few months ago, and I learned so much from her, and I was so um, amazed at how she changed the way I looked at the world and could understand the impact that she made that I just couldn't wait to get her here on Women at Work. So it's a thrill that we get to welcome her to the program today. She's the founder of the global human rights organization Breakthrough, and she led the group as its president and CEO for 17 years. She also co-founded Saki for South Asian Women, which unites survivors, communities, and institutions to eradicate domestic violence and form healthy communities. Before launching these boldly ambitious organizations, Malika served as the program officer for human rights and social justice at the Ford Foundation's New Delhi office and as associate director of the Center for Women's Global Leadership at Rutgers University and as the director of the Norman Foundation. Um, She's a member of New York City's Commission on Gender Equity and has been the recipient of several awards, including the Lippmann Family Prize from the Wharton School in 2014. She began this extraordinary career um, in a far less radical environment as an associate at Debevoise and Plimpton. Um, she was a graduate of NYU Law School, Columbia University School of International Affairs, and is the recipient of an honorary doctorate from her undergraduate college, Mount Holyoke, um, which I'm hoping we'll get to talk a little bit about today. So with all that, I'd like to say, Malika, welcome to Women at Work. Hi there. Thank you for having me on. Oh, it's an honor and a pleasure for us. So, Malika, as you and I were talking about earlier, since the late days of the presidential campaign, we've really been struggling to figure out how do we channel the rage and the fear that so many people feel right now, particularly in regards to the protection of women and girls in a country that seems to be moving backwards? How did you embark on your work in social activism? Was rage and fear a catalyst for you? How did it start? Um, It really started for me with my own childhood, growing up in a joint family where the boys were allowed to do things that I wasn't allowed to do, (laughs) where there were expectations around uh, the boys joining the family business, but me... Uh, expected to get married and sort of go off and create my own home. 
And so I was determined to forge my own path, and that led me to Mount Holyoke, which then really gave me the language and the analysis and the tools to embark on a human rights career firmly rooted in feminist principles. So that's really how my journey began. And so when you chose Mount Holyoke, were you already ignited or were you responding to it as an appealing educational environment? I think it was a combination of things. I was determined to get out um, (laughs) of home and Calcutta and sort of make my way in the world. And uh, I had met a friend's sister who was studying at Wellesley and was very taken with the idea of women's colleges. And the way she described her experience at Wellesley really spoke to some of my own dreams and ambitions. And so I ended up applying to most of the Seven Sisters and a few other women's colleges. And I ended up at Mount Holyoke because that's who gave me the most money. I mean, to be really honest. (laughs) Well, that's how it happens. (laughs) That's right. I needed a scholarship. I needed to, you know, find a way to to pay myself, uh, to pay my way through college. And so Mount Holyoke was where I ended up. And it was a huge culture shock initially. I had grown up in a big city, Calcutta, now called Kolkata. And there I was in sleepy little South Hadley um, in a completely different world and cultural environment. In retrospect, though, my years at Mount Holyoke were among the most uh, exciting and fruitful in my academic career, certainly. Mount Holyoke is known as an extraordinary place, and it sounds like um, you're a model of the way that higher ed can serve as part of a meritocracy, of how it can really transform um, where you came from and what's possible once you get that education. Um, But it sounds like as part of that transitional experience that Mount Holyoke gave you was also a cultural one. It wasn't just educational. Um, How did you learn how to learn about culture? You know, you, you grow up in Calcutta and then you're in South Hadley and you're in a completely different country and... Uh, you're being exposed to a global community for the first time in your life, right? I mean, that was my experience. So I had never really interacted with people from different parts of the world, and Mount Holyoke was pretty international, even in the early 80s. I certainly didn't know very much about Americans either. I certainly didn't know anything about the incredible diversity, racial and otherwise, of this country. I'd grown up on Hollywood movies. Um, and so I knew cowboys and Indians in the <laughs> right. most crass way of understanding genocide, racial politics, uh, you know, all of these different things. And so Mount Holyoke to me, every, every day at Mount Holyoke was a cultural education because one had so many assumptions that one had to unlearn And that very safe, caring, small community was a beautiful, amazing little crucible uh, where I could step into understanding all of that. And so the idea of culture and how culture is informed um, began to be a part of kind of how I understood the world because I came from one set of cultural norms and traditions and found myself in another set of cultural norms and traditions, at the same time, 
as I was seeing some of the unifying norms, which were not good ones, which were about the status of women, that mm-hmm. were about violence, that were about women as second-class citizens, whether we were in the United States or in India. So it was, it was really a very important time for me to understand culture as difference and similarity, as well as how one shaped culture in different kinds of ways. Part of why I'm asking about this is your work on changing culture with culture was a huge part of your success at Breakthrough um, that I'd love to talk about a little bit. So first, could you tell us um, what Breakthrough is and how you started it, and then we can talk about the campaigns that you did? Sure. So Breakthrough is a global human rights organization whose mission is to make violence against women and girls unacceptable. And Breakthrough deploys a bunch of different strategies that are really about culture change, that are about shifting the underlying norms that lead to violence in the first place. And so what Breakthrough does is use storytelling through all kinds of medium, um, through all kinds of, of, of ways, whether it's short-form video, music mm-hmm. videos, comedy, social media, video games, theater, um, but really looks to take narratives and shift them so that we start rewriting how we think about the relationship between women and men and how we think about gender. Breakthrough works in India and in the United States and in partnership with groups in different parts of the world. So that's a little bit about the organization itself. It really grew out of my own activism in different kinds of fora. You know, you already mentioned that I went to law school. When I graduated from law school, I was at Debra Boys in Plimpton, and I was doing a lot of pro bono, um, pro bono cases. I was working on a case on reproductive rights and abortion. I was working on an asylum case. At the time, I was also looking into starting Saki for South Asian Women, and I was trying to create a network of pro bono lawyers that were able and willing to represent battered immigrant women who really had no resources and no access. And in doing that work, I also began to get involved in sort of public policy, global public policy, went on to organizations like the Norman Foundation, Ford, and the Global Center. And so by the late 90s, I had really explored a multiplicity of ways to advance women's human rights and human rights in general, legal, policy, Mm -hmm. service, community organizing. And I started to feel that what all of us were doing was dealing with the violation and the problem after the fact. We were dealing with what, how we were going to respond to violence. We weren't really thinking about how to prevent the violence from happening in the first place. That's when I really started to get engaged with the question of culture change and how might we engage hearts and minds and a much larger constituency in this conversation so that we could turn the tap off rather than scrambling with buckets trying to catch the water that was overrunning it all the time in any case. 
as you embarked on this work, because this is a critical um, paradigm shift of going from responding to violence um, to preventing it, and and certainly um, more effective in um, in important ways if we can make it happen, which you've managed to do in many ways. How did you start to educate yourself about the factors um, that were involved in preventing it rather than responding to it? You know, initially it was all a crapshoot. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't like this uh, educational process that I embarked on. I was asking this question of how did one reach hearts and minds? How did one engage people outside the echo chamber? How could we create language that spoke beyond the activist community? And so I was getting more and more interested in the entertainment industry as really the master of storytelling. Mm -hmm. In India, which is where I was at the time, I was serving as the program officer for human rights and social justice at the Ford Foundation's New Delhi office. In India at that time, there was the growing advent of television and MTV. This was being juxtaposed against a long and deep tradition of Indian cinema and Bollywood and storytelling and, you know, Indian music. I'm sure folks are familiar with the whole Bollywood musical structure, right? And so there was this, there was this really interesting moment where MTV and Bollywood were coming together. So the short-form music video was suddenly on television and in the public gaze. And so I was curious about how one might use these new media forms that were emerging to tell a different story about women. And so I went off to talk with people in the entertainment industry in Bombay at the time. I met with people in the music industry, many music labels. I met folks at MTV, at Channel V, which was another music channel. I spoke to music directors, composers. Um, I talked to people in the soap opera world. Malika, how did you find these people? Did you know them? Did you have a network? Um, No, I didn't know any of these people. I was a human rights advocate who was (laughs) funding human rights organizations at the Ford Foundation. Um, Yeah, I was going to say, this was not part of your social milieu at the time. No, it was it was like a, a completely alien world to me. What I did was I sort of looked at people in my network who might be musicians, who who might know folks. And then I discovered that there was a book that you could buy that listed all of the people in the industry. So, you know, it, the, this little book actually had the name and phone number of the CEO of Sony Music. Like the, the Musicians and, Union book. It was it was like the it was like the entertainment industry book. It wasn't right. really like a union book. It was like everybody who the who's who of that world. Okay, like an industry yellow pages for people that yeah, remember exactly. actual phone books. Exactly. And so I believe it or not, started calling these people. <laughs> Just out of the blue. Out of the blue, and I still today, I mean, till this day, don't really understand why these people met with me, because certainly they didn't know who the hell the Ford Foundation was, and 
it was, you know, I mean, it wasn't really relevant to what they were doing, but I guess I sounded persuasive enough that I got this, I got a bunch of appointments. In the meantime, I had corralled some of my ex-husband's musician friends to kind of write a couple of songs that I'd recorded in a studio, and I took this tape along that I would like pay, play to these guys, and it was mostly guys. In fact, it was all guys. And I would sort of talk about my idea and get their feedback. And I listened because I got a lot of very uh, constructive criticism in some cases and downright uh, skepticism in other instances. What was and the range of the feedback? Because this whole thing is fascinating to me that, A, you just had the, the chutzpah to cold call. Um, you clearly, while you're being self-deprecating in it, you must have had a pitch that somehow got through um, and opened yourself up to this. I must have. Like I said, I, you know, I, when I look back on this and, you know, all of this was happening 17, 18 years ago, I'm still quite baffled as to how it all <laughs> came together. Um, when you actually got them, though, and you're now sharing this tape with them, you're trying to have a dialogue with them, and you're really accepting the input. What was the, um, how did it fall on the spectrum? Did you find a kind of gender-based hostility, or were you finding that the men were more open than people might have expected? There were three different kinds of uh, responses that I got. One was to the music that I had recorded in and of itself, which people said, was extremely preachy and really good for political parties, but not going to make it in the entertainment industry. Oh, okay. <laughs> they were like, take your songs and go sell, try and sell them to the Congress party. There's an election coming up, right? The second stream of feedback was about if you are going to try and talk about women's issues in the public domain like this, these are the things that you have to keep in mind. And I got feedback that included everything from create the Indian version of Spice Girls to, um, you know, the, the quality of what you're doing has to be impeccable. You cannot rely on that you're trying to do something good for the world as your calling card. It's got to be something that people are going to want to listen to amidst everything else that they're listening to. So you've got to pay attention to production values, you've got to pay attention to what's going on in the market right now, and you've got to think about how you're going to talk about women's rights, but in a cool, catchy way. Right. And then the third thing that was happening was guys hitting on me, mm. which was a very unexpected uh, It was unexpected, and I, and I think back, and I think how foolish of me to be so startled by it because I was already working in this space and in this field, but I had all I had been working in institutions and primarily in women's institutions or with women, so I hadn't really experienced sort of the you know you're you're talking to them about one thing and they're trying to get in your pants while that's happening, and so that was a that was a good learning experience for me to sort of manage all of those different things that were going on. Right, because this was clearly the first time that you were outside of the kind of organizations where values or policies are going to shape behavior, like they do at a foundation or a law firm. 
yet also encountering how an industry makes decisions about what gets produced. Um, by the way, I'm talking with the amazing Malika Dutt, who is the founder of the global human rights organization Breakthrough um, and was its president and CEO for 17 years. If you'd like to join in the conversation, you can reach us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. This aspect of what you did and what you learned from this feedback about the combination of you got to get a message. You clearly have the goal of getting a message out there. The content is critically important. You're also now given guidelines on what it can't be, that it can't be too preachy, um, and that it's also got to be fully a true piece of entertainment at the highest professional level, or it's not going to penetrate the marketplace. What did you do with that? How did you go about meeting that tall order? So I went to a music store and I bought every indie pop album that had been created and produced in the last couple of years. So I came home like with this stack of, I don't know, about 100 tapes or 75. This is the age when we were still listening to cassettes. CDs were just about tentatively entering the market. And I just sat and listened. I was like, okay, what's the, wh- what can I bring of my own ear, you know, who amongst this cast of characters is going to speak to me and what's going on in the market right now. And did you have any background in music? I was trained as an Indian classical musician when I was in high school. Um, And I love music. But that was, you know, that was the extent of my exposure to it. So it was Uh, enough... So it was enough musical background that you were an educated listener, but you were not a professional level maker. No, no. I mean, I was definitely not a maker of any sort. In my work life at the Ford Foundation, I was deeply involved in police reform and trying to figure out how to support public interest law in India and dealing with the rights of marginalized communities like the untouchable communities and women and other folks. I mean, that's what, you know, that's where, where that's, what I was doing full right. time as my job. And then here I was, you know, trying to figure this piece out. I found this group um, that I, there was this one album. The minute I heard this album, I knew that this was the team I wanted. So then I set about trying to find these people and get to them and talk to them. And so I found my artist, my music director and my lyricist, Again, uh, one of the women that I knew who was working on HIV-AIDS happened to be a student um, of the artist that I wanted to work with. So she introduced me to Shubha Mudgal. I can't really remember how I found connections to the the lyricist and the music director. So then I was like, okay, now I got to talk to these people and see if they're in to experiment with something like this. And lo and behold, they all said yes. And then I was like, uh, I have no idea how one goes about <laughs> producing a music album or a music video. So it's I've got the, the, these people who said yes. So the danger of success, you now have to do it. <laughs> right. So then I had to get permission from the president of the Ford Foundation and uh, my representative, you know, my my boss at the country level, because, you know, this was something that I was doing kind of simultaneously. So I wrote them these memos and they said yes. And it was one of those situations where I was in the world of philanthropy, but I couldn't get Ford to fund what I wanted to do. So then I had to try and raise the money from family and friends. 
and really learn what all of the different pieces were along the way. And it was one of the most extraordinary journeys of my life. I think that one of the most important things that I learned was that when you walk into a creative collaboration with a group of people, you, the alchemy of what you can come up with, if you really deeply respect each other's talents mm-hmm. and strengths, can be magical. It, it can be a wondrous experience. And when those things aren't in place, it can be absolutely painful and heartbreaking. Well, I think that what I, le- what I really had to keep sort of putting a lid on was as a human rights advocate, you know, I had this muscle that was all about this issue has to be talked about in this way. And so to translate human rights language into evocative, lyrical, engaging lyrics and music was a journey for me. And I would have to, you know, and and so in the conversations that the four of us would have as a creative team, Prasoon, who was the lyricist and is now actually the head of McCann Erickson in India, would recite something and it would be absolutely beautiful, but my little feminist head would be going, but, but, but that (laughs) word implies, but, 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 but can we say this instead? And they would look at me like I was crazy, but then they would listen to what I would have to say, right? And then we would go back to it. And then sometimes it would shift something. And then sometimes they would persuade me that absolutely this was the only way in which to communicate this, right? Like, and who was the audience? Who were we trying to talk to? We were not trying to speak to other human rights advocates. So I think lesson, lesson number one was the co-creative process is a magical process if you allow yourself mm-hmm. to also be engaged, creative, and be transformed by the people that you're working with. Lesson number two was let people who know what the hell they're doing do whatever it is that they need to do. You know? Yes, you found like, them, I trust was, them. <laughs> I'm, I wasn't suddenly going to be writing the lyrics, right? But, you know, also to kind of trust your trust yourself, but also trust other people, right? Like that was yes. a big piece of the journey for me. And I think lesson number two was just Take the risk. I mean, it doesn't matter if you don't know what you're doing. You're not going to learn how to do it if you don't try. Exactly. The, the courage and the bravery that was evident in this, along with the spirit that you um, trusted your own instincts about which musicians um, were the right fit. And then you not only you took your verve to reach out, but then you knew when to step back and listen. And it sounds like that was a critical part of opening your, yourself up to the creative collaboration. Absolutely. And it was a very different methodology and way of doing and being than the social justice way of being and doing, right? So it was For also sure. really important to remember that we we can often get so caught up in our own version of the world that we can forget just how many different paths there can be to change. And in this using culture to use culture, this, this was really my deep dive into cultural expression for cultural transformation, well, you know? Malika, this is, A, I think a perfect moment for us to take a break. Um, and when we come back, we're going to talk about 
what you chose to do with that cultural impact, the products that you were making, the process that you were going through, and the enormous change that it made. I'm Laura Zarrow here on Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Laura Zarrow. Welcome back to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Senior Director of Wharton People Analytics, and today we're talking with human rights pioneer Malika Dutt. We're talking about her journey as an activist and social entrepreneur, creative collaboration, and her tremendous work in fighting the global pandemic of uh, domestic violence and sexual abuse against girls and women, both abroad and here in the U.S., Um, along with some other wisdom that we have to learn from Malika about things like self care and interconnectedness. And hopefully we're going to get that all in in the next half hour. So with that, Malika, welcome back to Women at Work. Hi, how are you? Okay. So before the break, you were telling us this illuminating story on so many levels about the creative collaboration that you experienced and grew through in starting to create the music videos that you would put out there as part of Breakthrough's work to try and change the culture around sexual violence of women with cultural product. Tell us a little bit about what was the content. You know, you talked about you're working with musicians, you're working on lyrics, you knew it had to be um, a professional level piece of entertainment and media, but that you also clearly had a content goal here that was carefully negotiated with your team. What was its content? What was the message that you were trying to get out there? So, you know, I wanted to talk about violence against women, and the team really, the group really convinced me that what we needed to be talking about was a more positive framing of women's dreams. So to kind of flip the idea of violence on its head with, you know, what is it that women want? Was it, it, what is it that... that um, we dream about, aspire to, and to come to the question of violence, not from these are the horrible things that happen to us, but this is who we are and this is what we want. So this is what a life without violence can look like. You know, it was even sort of beyond, it, it was trying to sort of untether the dream just from the violence, because even mm. that was circumscribing it in some way. Do you know what I mean? Yes. So it wasn't just about stopping the violence. It was about something, about being a whole, full person. Exactly. And so the, the songs, the, the lyrics that, that Prasoon was writing and sort of the, the music that was being evoked came from that place. And then sort of within that, the issue of violence was being addressed. And I think the best way for me to answer your question is to actually give you the storyline of the first two music videos that we created. That'd be great. So the first music video, it's this incredibly powerful song, which is about finding your own soulmate that lies within and finding your voice and finding your steps and your rhythm and dancing your, your way into the world and remembering all of the things about yourself that you have forgotten, right, that, that are there but that you might have forgotten. And it's a beautiful song. 
and it's a very peppy song. It's a, you know, it's a dancey song. And what we did with the storyline was that I remember a bottle of wine sitting down with the guys and them looking at me and saying, okay, Malika, tell us a story about a woman that's really inspired you or tell us a couple of stories. And immediately my mind went to this woman that I had met a couple of months prior who was testifying at this tribunal, this hearing that was happening about Muslim women in this particular part of India that were dealing with violence within the Muslim community and then also dealing with violence as a minority community in the context of Hindu-Muslim violence, right? And how Mm -hmm. women were sort of bearing the brunt of multiple forms of violence And so there were all these women who were telling the most heartbreaking stories about things that had been happening to them. And all of a sudden, this woman got up and went up to the podium, and she was just like this fireball. And she turned out to be a taxi driver who had walked out of a domestic violence situation with her her husband and had become a taxi driver. And, you know, Again, remember, this is 18 years ago, Mm -hmm. so women doing stuff like that in public spaces were not that common. But there was just something about her energy and how she held herself that was so inspiring. And I remember going up to her after her talk and saying, if you ever run for elections, I will leave my job and come and work (laughs) for you. You know, like it was one of those things. So I shared that story and... In the telling of it, in the co-creative process, in the music video, she turned into a truck driver. And so the storyline of the music video is you see this woman driving a truck. She's got this little daughter with her, the deserts of Rajasthan. So, you know, just imagine beautiful sand dunes all around the highway. And she's got all these women dancing on the back of the truck. And through a series of flashbacks, you see her walking out of her abusive marriage with her kid, becoming a truck driver. And so the story of the violence is embedded in this incredible story of liberation. And so these women who are hanging out on the truck, you know, rescue another woman who's being Mm -hmm. chased by her husband. But generally, they're just sort of hanging out and having a really good time. So you see the poignancy of this woman's story, but now you're in the energy of women occupying public space and this really uh, just inspiring and beautiful way. And this music video was really hard to shoot. I mean, that was another learning curve. I've never produced anything (laughs) in my life. 80 of us in the deserts of Rajasthan with a damn truck. My, I mean, my lawyer brain was like having a complete meltdown <laughs> with all the liability issues and permissions and everything else, you know, that was going on. And so shooting that, I mean, there's a whole bunch of stories to share about that experience. But this music video, when this album was launched, went through the charts. Top 10 for six months, high rotation, every music channel, We were on a five-city tour that's, you know, the four of us and myself. I got Virgin Records to release the album. They were supposed to have paid for the music video. When I told them the storyline, they said, this is ridiculous, no way. 
So then I had to scramble until the last minute to raise the money to pay for this music video. Ironically, we won the National Screen Awards for this music video, which is like, you know, at the time was the highest award mm -hmm. we could get in the country. And who went up onto the podium to get the award? Virgin Records. Oh, my God. <laughs> right? So, but it was like, so it was like stuff like that that was happening. But, but at the with, same time, Malika, because I've seen the video and I recommend you can find it on YouTube. It is breathtakingly beautiful. And going back to something that you were talking about before, about what's the message? How is it not too preachy? How is it not too radical? So that it gets listened to, but it's also impactful. And as I watched it without knowing the backstory, you know, I took away everything you're saying, but it also gave me this sense of the way that women make a safe place for each other and restore each other's dignity, particularly at times of crisis. Absolutely. I mean, what we were able to do in that three and a half minute video in terms of storytelling at so many layers, so many multiple layers of leaving, entering into a non-traditional you know, profession, mm -hmm. a community of women, leadership, solidarity, parenting, culture, challenging cultural norms. It was an eye-opener for me because having been used to the world of law and policy where we go blah, 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 blah <laughs> for hours. To each other with no one else listening. Or even to the external world where nobody really understands what the hell we're saying. To have the ability through a narrative arc of three and a half minutes to capture an audience, an imagination challenge multiple norms, right? Like mm -hmm. this music video challenged so many different norms. And then at the end of the music video, we say it's inspired by the true life story of Shamim Patan, who was the woman that I, had to, that I told you about mm -hmm. earlier. And that was another norm that got challenged, right? Because there's this whole uh, storyline in our heads about Muslim women being sort of the weak uh, you know, downtrodden or invisible victims of the world. And so this story of this woman who's like kicking ass <laughs> right. is the story of a Muslim woman. And in India, everybody knows from that name that she's a Muslim woman, right? Even though in the music video, we made her an, a Hindu woman. And again, there were like lots of back and forth because we wanted it to be sort of totally engaging the majority community. Mm -hmm. And again, there are all of these symbols that you would only understand in the Indian context, but which really don't matter because it's still a global story where, you know, she's got a bindi on her head and she's got the red powder in her hair, which symbolizes being married in the Hindu tradition, right? But then at the end of it, it's like, damn, this story was inspired by a Muslim woman. OMG. <laughs> right. And that and it can communicate on both levels. So, That's right. So That's after right. the the huge success of this video, which is clearly part of messaging that's going to women and about how to perceive women, um, Breakthrough did another campaign that was actually an advertise a commercial campaign um, uh, that translates to ring the bell. That instead of being aimed, I think, at women, it was really aimed at men interrupting violence. Could you tell yep. us a little bit about it, how it worked, and what made you go there? So, you know, I mean, I think that when one 
when I started to really get deeper and deeper into the work of culture change, many of the women that we were working with started to say to us, hello, what about the men? Mm-hmm. Um, if we're really going to talk prevention, where are the men? You know, this is just, it's, it's not possible to prevent violence against women unless we transform the norms that lead men to be violent in the first place. So how do we make that happen? And we had actually done a campaign on men infecting their wives with HIV AIDS, um, which had gotten a lot of traction and pickup. But the women kept saying it's not enough to still keep focusing this on women in this way. There's got to be a different narrative that engages men. And so we reached out to Ogilvy. Ogilvy had become our pro bono creative partner in India and basically said, this is what we want to do. And so again, you know, a whole bunch of story ideas later, this was the one that really clicked. We didn't want a situation where we were representing men as rescuers, right, or saviors. Right, because that only diminishes the power of the women that they're theoretically saving. That's right. So how, how could we catalyze accountability and agency on the part of men to stop the violence without making women further victimized? and making men sort of the rescuers and the protectors of women, right? Like it was a really fine line to walk, again, in terms of norms and how are we to shift these norms. So this young guy who was part of the Ogilvy team, his name is Ryan, in his 20s was the one who came up with this idea of you're a guy, you're sitting in your apartment, you're reading the newspaper, drinking your tea, and you can hear a couple of doors down the corridor a man beating the crap out of his wife. And you can hear her screaming. You can hear him screaming. What do you do? Do you ignore it, which is what most of us usually do, or do you intervene in some way? Now, this campaign began in India, and in India we don't have a 911 culture. So it's not like you can just call 911 I think it was also really important for us to move beyond always looking to criminal justice interventions and trying to understand how it was that we all needed to show up and shift this kind of behavior in our own communities, in our own families, right? Like well, it's, 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 it, it, it goes back to what you were saying before about the difference of preventing violence versus, versus responding to it and doing it right. one-to-one instead of through government organizations. By the way, this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and I am talking with the extraordinary Malika Dutt, a leading women's rights activist. If you want to join in the conversation, you can reach us at one 844 Wharton. That's 1-844-942-7866. So as you started to navigate another kind of creative collaboration centered around this problem of how to communicate to the men, not in a preachy way and in a responsible way that could be socially accepted. Um, How did you wind up shaping this idea of ring the bell? So, you know, it wasn't, it was, it was, 
See, one of the things that I've always felt is that you've got to make it engaging. So you've got to meet people where they're at, and mm-hmm. then you've got to push them a little bit. You <laughs> right. can't just meet them where they're at and leave it there, right? Like right, and you can't push them from, and you can't push them from a place they don't inhabit to start. Right, but you can't, and and you can't sort of push them from you know, Pluto to Mars. (laughs) So you also have to kind of like figure out how to make that happen. And it's all, this is what I'm saying, that you can have all the knowledge in the world, but some of this is intuition, some of this is alchemy, some of this is research. You know, it's, it's a whole bunch of different things. What we discovered was that when the guy gets up and goes and rings the doorbell and interrupts the violence, what happens next is where we had to make some really big decisions. So in all of the ads, the guy makes some kind of an excuse, asks for milk, asks if the mail went into the wrong place, asks if there's electricity, asks if the ball fell in there, you know, like so, different So it's ways. not ringing the bell as a direct confrontation. That's right. It's ringing the bell as an interruption. Yes. However, in the visual exchange that happens between the man opening the door and the man ringing the bell, it's very clear that the man ringing the bell is telling the guy who's beating his wife that it's not okay, right? Like it isn't, mm-hmm. it isn't just sort of a soft little interruption, right? So there's a huge amount of stuff that gets communicated just in how they look at each other. Yeah, there was a narrative device that was used in one of them, I think, where um, the guy goes down the hall, rings the bell, asks if he can use the phone. And while um, the guy who answered the door is processing this, the phone in his pocket rings. So it's very clear he doesn't need the phone. So it becomes a face-saving way of saying, I'm interrupting something here. That's right. That's exactly right. And so there was a fair amount of debate on that. Should the interrupter say something specifically about the violence? And what Mm -hmm. came back, and again, this is what us feminists, you know, this is what feminists were really pushing. So we tested it. And what came back loud and clear from the community was that no one was going to ring the bell if that's what they were going to be asked to do. Right. It was too confrontational. It was too confrontational. These were people in their community. These were people that they lived next door to. You know, it wasn't like the cop coming and then leaving. No. and, and It was like this was the guy down the corridor, right? Right. And the cultural sensitivity was critical to this. I want to fast forward to another campaign that you did in a, in a similar spirit, but in a very different place with a different focus here in the United States with college students. Could you talk about that campaign and how that formed and what you learned from the Ring the Bell ca- campaign in doing it? So what we learned from Ring the Bell that then actually got translated into the States and it actually became a huge global campaign was that men, when invited to be part of the solution, actually wanted to step up. Mm-hmm. And that the narrative that we had created, that we have created around violence against women and sort of reified these roles of men as perpetrators and women as victims actually locks everybody into a certain triangle, if you will, that makes it difficult to behave in a different way. And so with this campaign, we were giving men an invitation to play a completely different role, and they really took it. 
And this was another campaign that went through the charts. In India, it became part of debating societies, poetry campaigns, you know, ended up in five soap operas. Then it started getting adapted in countries <laughs> like in Vietnam and Bangladesh and South Africa. And I mean, it was pretty crazy. Now, when we, came, when we started to look at the U.S., because everyone was like, well, what about here since we also work here um, on issues of gender-based violence, what folks in the criminal justice system started to say to us, and I did this huge presentation on Ring the Bell with prosecutors, DAs, lawyers, judges in New York City, what they said was that the gun culture in the U.S. made it challenging for people to ring the bell Mm -hmm. because the fear that somebody was going to shoot them was an underlying piece of the story that we didn't have to deal with in India. So it was really fascinating to, you know, be confronted with gun culture in the United States as being the reason why a campaign like this could work in India and not here. And so what we did was transform it a little bit into what we called Be That Guy. And the Be That Guy campaign then focused on finding public spaces where men were sexually harassing women but where buddies then intervened with their buddies and said, "Uh uh-uh, this is not acceptable behavior. So it wasn't like walking into some stranger's place, but it was really showing up with your friends and saying, so we have this great campaign which actually showed at NASCAR, which is one of the highest watched sports events in the United States, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. And so we were like on the big (laughs) jumbotron at NASCAR where, you know, the race is going on and there are these two guys having a good time and then one of the women, you know, who serves burgers and and Coke and beer and stuff comes by and one of the guys starts to reach out to, like, pinch her bottom and her his buddy stops him and is like, no way. And the whole, you know, the whole arena collapses into that moment like all the cars come to a screeching halt and everything spotlights into that moment and then the message is be that guy be that guy who stops the harassment so be be the positive actor and so we did a whole bunch of ads like that and then created a program that we did with fraternity men on college campuses to really find ways in which we could shift the norms around what it was that men were supposed to be doing with women on college campuses to shifting to how do you create relationships with respect? How do you challenge your peers to show up differently? How do you create a frat culture that if you're talking about brotherhood and respect, how do you make that extend to women as well? It's hugely important and fascinating to see how the journey that started with the cultural sensitivity in India carried forward to a a community that's rife with sexual assault right now. Um, But unfortunately, we also know that the pandemic of violence against women and girls isn't limited, just like it's not limited to India, it's also not limited to frat culture. It's happening, um, unfortunately, throughout the United States. Nicholas Kristof just put out an unbelievably disturbing article about 11-year-old girls who's a mom and pushed to marry her rapist in Florida. Your work is clearly um, hugely impactful, but there's more work that needs to be done. 
you stepped down from Breakthrough in the last year. Um, how did you help in the few minutes that we have left? I'd love to know how you prepared Breakthrough for your departure and how that legacy gets to continue there. Well, you know, um, I let the organization know that I wanted to leave uh, at least a year and a half before my departure because, you know, founder transitions can be pretty tricky. Um, But, you know, I also had an incredibly deep and wide bench of leadership, country directors, Mm -hmm. other people, in the organization that followed our culture of a shared leadership model. So, so years and years ago, I mean, I really started to challenge this idea of the president and the CEO is the only one that meets with funders. The president and the CEO is the only one who talks to media. The president and the CEO is the only one who attends conferences and networks with people. Um, so in challenging that, we really started to make sure that Multiple people in the organization represented breakthrough in in different fora, and were also part of the co-creative process of what we were trying to do in the world. And so, a lot of things also started to shift within breakthrough as a result of that. I mean, as I was saying earlier, the minute you you talk about sharing power, that means that your leadership has to figure out how your voice then dances with other voices. And when and where do you step in as the leader with a nay, and when and where do you change your mind about something? (laughs) Well, Malika, I have to tell you, um, having your voice mingle with ours today has been not just an immense pleasure, but a huge honor. And I'm only sad that we're running out of time. So I want to thank you for being with us today and the exceptional work that you've done. Thank you so much. Um, and uh, I encourage people to go online, check out Breakthrough.org. It's a fascinating organization that could surely use your support. Um, if you have a question about anything you heard today on today's show, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Um, follow us on Twitter at BizRadio111. Special thank you to Malika Dutt, our producer, Patty Hall, our pro- associate producer, Alina Pang, and our sound engineer, Tatiana Zamis. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work on Business Radio. Powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. Don't give up the fight. Most people think great God will come from the sky.